Good morning. Well, we're off to a great start today. It's always exciting to have baptisms in the service and for us to witness that. Just the visual, visual aid it is to the supernatural regeneration, salvation, our sins being washed away and united with Christ and united to one another. Great, great start to the day's service. Well, if you could go ahead and turn to John chapter 5. We'll be in John chapter 5, verses 1 through 17 today. And going through John each week, I'm like, I'm not sure exactly where to cut off on how many verses. And uh, so today we're going to do through 17. And uh, next week we'll pick up, of course, where we left off. There's always next week. That's what I have to keep telling myself. So we'll pick up there. But just to kind of catch you up, uh, over here in, in John chapter 4, we, of course, have, have dealt with Jesus intentionally, deliberately going to Samaria. Uh, this was not accidental, but it was purpose-dental. He was going there and right next to the well to a lady who had, had many different husbands, who was currently living in an adulterous relationship, uh, and he begins to share with her. She's wanting water. Instead, he's saying, I have something greater than that. I am the fountain of living water, which is a, is a title that God addresses to himself over in the book of Isaiah. So, uh, so we see him uh, talking with her, witnessing to her, she gets up, takes off running through the city with beautiful feet because they're running with good news. She announces to everyone in the city, the Samaritans of all people, again, they were a mix. We went into that history a little bit there. They were a mixed uh, race of Jew and Gentile. Therefore, they were hated by the real Jews, the true uh, genetically pure Jews, you might say. But on top of that, they had a mixed religion. They took some of the Old Testament, only the first five books, but they also melded in the current uh, 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 idolatrous religions as well, making up their own religion. So for her, for Jesus to intentionally go into Samaria to spend time with a woman, a Samaritan woman, a woman in adultery, a woman who's had multiple husbands, and she believes, she runs through the city, the whole city ends up coming, and they beg Jesus to stay for two days, and he does, and he, they, he teaches them. They listen, and they all believe, Right? Uh, fast forward, Jesus then goes into Galilee, uh, his hometown territory, and they welcome him, but we realize it's not a true welcome. Many welcomes of Jesus, and many of those who believe in Jesus upon further exploration in the book of John, it's not true belief. It is not a true welcome. They welcome him because they want to see him perform signs like he did at the feast, at the Passover feast, where they witnessed him doing signs. However, there's one man who's come over 20 miles from Capernaum there, an official who has a son that is dying and wants Jesus to come heal his son. And from 20 miles away, Jesus says, speaks the words and the young man is healed. So uh, we looked into that last week and you'd see some similarities there as far as Jesus reaching the one woman and all these people coming to Jesus in belief. Over here in Galilee, they welcome him, but it's not true welcome. It's not true belief. However, this man from Capernaum believes, goes back to his home, and the whole household now believes. And we took a moment to apply that, the power of one person, one witness. You never know how many people or generations are going to be affected by you sharing the gospel with one single person. And don't qualify them. I mean, if you knew of a person who had six husbands and was living in adultery, you might think that's probably not the person I want to go witness to right now, Right? But that's exactly who Jesus went to to witness to. So never underestimate the power of the gospel to radically change someone's life and for them to share that gospel with others. That's how you are here today because that process has been continued on 
if we want it to continue on with us. Let's look at uh, John chapter 5, and we'll just read through uh, verse 1 through 17. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Beth- Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now, that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. Let's pray. Dearly Father, once again, we thank you, God, for the salvations, Lord, that, and the baptisms that we got to witness today with our eyes, even though you, of course, are aware and have witnessed and uh, brought their salvation about um, uh, times of, time ago. But we thank you, God, that we, the body here at the Church of Pecan Creek, were able to rejoice and celebrate that with them today, Lord. Such a beautiful, beautiful uh, symbol of the sin, our sins being washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ, the uniting with Jesus Christ and his death, his burial, and his resurrection, and the new life that we now have through you, Lord. Uh, God, we thank you for your word. Help us to focus on your word and uh, to, to, to let your word teach us correct doctrine and reprove us when necessary. Help it to teach us right behavior as well. Help us to see what you have in store for us in your word today and apply it directly to our beliefs and to our behavior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if we start back at verse 1. Uh, John says, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And now, this is, I'm going to go off on this for a little bit today, because it comes up seven different times as we go through the book of John, and John does mention the feast quite often. He's already mentioned the signs that were performed by Jesus at the last Passover feast, uh, where he was overturning the temple tables and uh, at that time as well. Uh, and now he references the second reference to these feasts. Now, this is, I, I did not realize this until much later in my life. This may be old news to you, but there were seven feasts that God had ordered the Israelites to partake of each year, and three of them were mandatory feasts, where um, the male representative from every home, no matter how far out you had pilgrims, you had to come back to uh, the place of God, and now this was the, the temple, the place uh, in Jerusalem. It was required, it was God's law, and it was absolutely mandatory. So look with me over at Deuteronomy chapter 16, 
verses 16 through 17, just so that you can see some of this. Deuteronomy 16, 16 through 17. And this is a command of God to the Israelites. It is God's law, and they were certainly to obey it. So as we, John opens up here in chapter 5 that Jesus had gone back to Jerusalem for the feast. We're assuming it's going to be one of these feasts. And now but before we read this portion, there are three mandatory feasts. Odds are it is one of those. Many speculate it's not the Passover because a whole year has probably not gone by, but John doesn't specify which feast it is. But we, we can speculate most likely it's one of the three required feasts that Jesus was going back to. And here they are. Look at verse 16. Three times a year all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose. At the Feast of Unleavened Bread, all right, this is the first required feast. Next is the Feast of Weeks, and then thirdly, the Feast of Booths. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. Now, what we find out is that these feasts are not only a part of God's commands to Israel, But there are lessons involved, theological lessons, things that are to be learned about God and also a time to reflect on their great exodus that God had saved them, rescued them from, bought them out, redeemed them out of the land of Egypt. Okay, so there's lots of lessons that they are to recall and every feast is to remind them of what God has accomplished for them and what God is going to accomplish for them in the future. But yet also there is this. Uh, It is a type, uh, we call them typologies sometimes, where it is pointing to something even greater than just the past. It's kind of like prophecy. So the feasts operate kind of like the types, kind of like the prophecies, as that they are looking forward at what the Messiah is ultimately going to accomplish. The easiest one that we can make that connection on is, of course, the first one, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So this is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Its apex day is, of course, the Passover. And if we go back and we think through this, we cover this a lot when we do the Lord's Supper here, but we go back and we think of the Exodus. This was going to be the 10th plague that God uh, places on Egypt and rescues Israel from, right? And they were to put the blood of the lamb on the outside of the door. God's wrath is going to pass through, and it is going to fall on the firstborn of every home unless a sacrificial lamb, a spotless, blemishless lamb has been sacrificed and the blood is outside the door. God will not go in to see. The blood is going to cause him to pass over. The wrath is going to be passed over. They are given mercy. They are given grace. Are they sinners? Are Israelites sinners? Are Egyptian sinners? They're all sinners. What makes a difference? One has a sacrificial lamb on the blood on the outside. So that is the Passover meal that they were to partake that day before they left. But not only then, they were to repeat this meal every single year. And the lessons that they are taught are to be repeated so the next generation may know how God rescued them. All right. But of course, we see there on the night of Jesus' betrayal that Jesus takes the Passover meal and he transforms it. What does he do? He says, yes, this was pointing to that. But you know what? My blood, my body, this is me, and now 
you are forgiven of your sins because of my sacrifice. And all he takes that feast and applies it to himself and says, now this is forgiveness of sins. This is the Lord's Supper. This is why we do this now. We do not go back to Jerusalem are required to to take the uh, unleavened bread feast and to take of the Passover meal. Instead, we have partaken of Jesus Christ, his blood, his body for forgiveness of sins. And we have the Lord's Supper as a reminder of that, right? But kind of like uh, the Passover meal was to remind them of what they had done, how God had saved them, how he will continue to, to provide for them. The Lord's Supper does the same thing. We are reminded of our sins have been passed over by Jesus Christ. Uh, he took the wrath so we could be forgiven. Uh, we have assurance of salvation now. We will be with him at the marriage supper, the Lamb's marriage supper in heaven. We will, this assurance continues on now, and we will eat with him again. So it's beautiful, right? So we see that one easily, easily uh, uh, the type and then the substance, all right? The, the, how, what it's pointing towards, and how Jesus says, look, this is me. First uh, Corinthians five, seven, Paul says this for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Very easy. All right. Uh, also connected to this first uh, feast, the feast of unleavened bread. You have the Passover meal. You also have what is called the wave offering. And I want you to turn with me to Leviticus 23, nine through 16 to see this Leviticus 23, verse nine through 16. It might be an interesting connection here that you have not noticed before, but as you look through this, it's like you're seeing God's perfect timing in all of this. Uh, look at verse 9. Let's see. So this will be at the end of the, the first feast. That connect, there's something that goes on that connects to the next feast. All right? And this is it. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted. You shall count seven full weeks from that day after the Sabbath from the day you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. All right, it's a little bit confusing if you're unfamiliar with this, but they are to have the, this, this offering is to be presented, the wave offering, a sheaf of grain, a uh, big bundle of grain was to be weighed before the Lord. All right, and why is this to be? Uh, look at verse 11. And he shall weigh the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted. And then there's this counting of weeks. There's this counting of days that follows until the next one, the next feast. All right. So this wave offering was what connected the Feast of Unleavened Bread or the Passover to the next festival. It was happened the very next day, and then from that day, they are to count seven weeks. Now, it is no accident that Jesus dies on the Passover and that he rises from the dead on the what we now refer to as Sunday, which would also be the wave offering day. You have a single sheaf that is way before the Lord, so the people may be accepted. And you begin to see all of this is connected to God's timing. Even the feasts are involved, where things are lining up exactly for the Messiah to accomplish. 
so that we are accepted because of this wave offering, but it is also looking forward to this greater harvest that is to come, the Feast of Harvest of the First Fruits. Now, the second one we're going to cover is the Feast of the Harvest of the First Fruits. We don't see this mentioned much in the Bible. Early on, they ch it's, though it's so prominent, they begin to change the name. If you look through the Old Testament, it turns into the Festival or Feast of Weeks. That is the same thing. How are they getting it? How are they calling it now the Feast of Weeks? Well, you go back to what we read in Leviticus, and it's literally how to count this forward, seven full weeks. So it became nicknamed the Feast of Weeks. By the time you get to the New Testament, it's not really referred to as the Feast of the Harvest of the First Fruits. I think it's just a mouthful, all right? Uh, neither is it the Feast of Weeks, but what is it called? Well, we go to Acts chapter 2, and it's actually called Pentecost. What does Pentecost mean? It means 50 days, right? So you see, you begin to see this beautiful connection of these Old Testament feasts. And John is mentioning these Old Testament feasts as we go through the book of John. So I think it's good to go ahead today and lay a little groundwork, knowing how important these, were, these feasts were to the Jews. How mo it looks like most of the feasts, if not every single one that he mentions, is a mandatory feast. So everyone is back in Jerusalem to see uh, the Jesus and to see these things happening, all right? Now, look over at Acts chapter 2, and I want you to look at this feast of the harvest. The great harvest coming in is the big key to this feast. The what, sh single sheaf that was waved at the wave offering before the Lord for the people to be accepted also looked forward agriculturally to the great harvest that would come in 50 days. And then here in Acts chapter 2, we see this amazing harvest. In Acts chapter 2, there's a lot there. I'm not going to read the entire thing. Today, I'm just going to look at verses 1 through 6 and verses 36 through 41 uh, for our purpose of this passage as we're looking at the feast. So look what he says here. When the day of Pentecost arrived, this will be 50 days after the wave offering, after Jesus had risen from the dead, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound mighty, like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation. Well, Paul's right there just a moment. Why is that? Because this was one of the mandatory required by God's law come to Jerusalem feast days, all right? When was the last one? It was Passover. It was 50 days earlier, 51 days earlier, and you go back a little bit further for the whole unleavened bread feast, the Passover, the wave offering. They were all just there for Jesus' death, for his, for his resurrection as well. Then they go back to their other places, right? Then they come back to Jerusalem, and all this is happening, men devout men, Jews, from every nation. Why are they from every nation back there on Pentecost? Because they're obeying God's law that he had laid forth. All right, look at verse 6. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Now drop on down to verse 36. Peter is preaching. And he says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, 
Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone who calls on the name of everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And again, you see this, the beauty here of the connection of the Old Testament feast and how this is fulfilled in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Uh, just earlier, you only had 120 Jews who, were, who, were, who had come together and who were praying in that room, right? 120, after Jesus had done all that he had done, all the signs, the miracles, the wonders, all the teaching, and there's 120 there. And then the 50 days later, the Feast of the Harvest, what happens? 3,000 souls are added that day, and it doesn't stop. Then there's more thousands. Then the number becomes so big that they can no longer keep count. The harvest is here, right? It so reminds you of a, of, of, of Jesus talking to the disciples uh, when the Samaritan woman got up to go tell the others and they're trying to give him food. He's like, no, no, look, the harvest, look, it's here. They're white for the harvest, right? And so many Samaritans are coming. Here you have 3,000 Jews added to that number. The fulfillment of this feast was not just that there would be more grain or more, more things to eat. It was people being saved exactly on the day of the feast of the harvest, right when it was supposed to happen. Now, um, we're only going to cover those two today, just kind of looking at how they are fulfilled. Uh, one of the questions might be, are these feasts prescribed by God still required for us? And the answer is no. All right, this was given specifically to the nation of Israel. And uh, we see their, their importance, of course, diminish, even in, in Jesus' life and then after that as well. Uh, verses we've looked at before, Colossians 2, 16 and 17, uh, help shed a lot of light on this. Uh, we are not commanded to keep these feasts. Instead, it would be more appropriate to look at how Jesus' life, his person, his work has, has been uh, shown, been revealed through these feasts. All right? Colossians 2, 16 and 17, Paul says this, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival. What festival is he talking about? He's not just talking about a general party or a citywide party. He's talking about the seven feasts, the seven festivals, and most likely those three required mandatory feasts. So you go back to Deuteronomy, you were to be judged if you did not obey God and come back to where he said to come. He said it, you got to come back, this is the rule, this is the law, if not, you are to be judged. What does Paul say? No more judgment. That, that's, not, that's not in play anymore. That was a, a specific rule, specific law given to the nation of Israel. They were to obey. Now we are in the new covenant, and under the new covenant, we are not required to go back to Jerusalem and fulfill these feasts. He goes on to say, of course, in 16, uh, do not judge with regard to the festival or a new moon, as we've covered in the past there was a sacrifice, a major sacrifice that happened each new moon. Uh, that's what he's talking about there. Or a Sabbath. 
and this will be important, we'll get into this a little bit this week and next week as well, that we are not to judge regarding the Sabbath. Now, were you to judge regarding the Sabbath in the Old Testament? Uh, yes, right? Jesus called them to stone a man who was picking up sticks on the Sabbath. Now, verse 16, you are not to pass judgment on anyone regarding these things. Why? Look at verse 17. This is so critical to this argument. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So each one of these, the sacrifices, the Sabbath, the feast, all of these are a shadow pointing to the substance of Jesus Christ. Now that the substance has come, we are to look to him. It's beautiful how Paul lays this out. All right. So is there a need now for us to get on a plane and go to Jerusalem once, twice, three times a year? Absolutely not. Right. There is no need to do this. Instead, we look to Christ. We look to Christ. Now, back to John. That's a little history on these feasts. Hopefully that will help you out and you'll remember some of that as we continue to move through the book of John for the next 10 years. All right, so John, John chapter 5, verse 2. Uh, now, there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Now, we'll pause right there. Because your Bible, depending on your translation that you have there, may have a note or may actually just skip. And if you have an ESV like I have, you'll notice that there is no verse 4 in uh, that, that translation. So just a quick note on that, all right? If you're thinking that they, don't, they messed up the count there, that is on purpose. And if you have, a, uh, and if you have the verse 4 that is actually in some of your translations... Your odds are you'll have a small note there, and if you look down, it'll say something to the effect of, this portion of the passage is not found in the oldest and most reliable manuscripts. And in that verse 4, it does mention that they were there at the pool waiting on an angel to stir the waters that someone might be healed, all right? And I know of no uh, commentator or theologian that now believes that that was in the original manuscript. It's called an editor's gloss, or, or someone had put a note in the, beside the, the, the manuscripts over here at one time explaining what that was and explaining that belief. It drifted into uh, some of the writings, but our oldest and most reliable manuscripts do not have that in there. Even the language that is used is not Johannine, uh, not becoming of John. All right, so there's multiple words in there that he, he does not use. So that's why that is not there. If you're, if you're reading along going, hey, Trey, skip verse 4, that is why. All right, so that is there, and it seems to be uh, put there by someone along the way to explain their belief of why they were at the pool and to explain this uh, superstition that had arisen. There's nothing that we have to draw from that says that was actually the truth of the matter, that an angel actually did that, okay? Look at verse 5. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. 
So Jesus comes to this area. It is surrounded by sickness. It is surrounded by invalids, handicapped, etc., right? And his eyes, though, go to one specific person, a person who has been an invalid for 38 years. Uh, the exact nature of his, his uh, handicap is not, not elaborated on. In context, it looks like there's some, some kind of lameness, some kind of paralysis perhaps to his legs because he cannot get himself up and get himself into the water. So, and he's been this way for 38 years, right? Now, he sees Jesus. Jesus asks him this question. And we have to remember that he does not know who Jesus is at all. He doesn't recognize him. He doesn't know who Jesus is. He does not know that he is the Messiah. He does not know that he is the Son of God. He just sees Jesus as a person who has a capable body and that he could pick him up perhaps and take him to the water in time. And maybe he's offering that. Do you want to get well? He's like, I can't do it. I can't get myself in. But maybe you can. And it's similar to the woman at the well. Uh, She was looking to Jesus for water. And Jesus has so much more to offer, right? And this man as well, he's looking to Jesus. You're able. Maybe you can get me in. But Jesus has so much more to offer than that. And this is an interesting point that we want to pause at for a moment and look at this. Because this man had no faith in Jesus. Uh, Did he want to get well? Yes, he wanted to get well. But there's nothing here to say that he had faith in Jesus Christ for this healing. As we continue on, as we just read earlier, he does not even know his name. He does, I mean, it's just a one person out of all the multitude of thousands of people that have come back for this mandatory feast. He doesn't know who he is. So there is no faith in Jesus Christ for this healing. And this is interesting. Uh, today, many faith healers will attempt to heal people who are sick or invalids or severely handicapped. But when the person is not healed, they will usually say that it is due to their lack of faith. This person had zero faith. What do we see here? Uh, we see God doing what God wants to do. And he does, God is the one who gives faith, Right. And so he, God is doing, this is a monergistic work of Jesus Christ. He is not, not, not needing this person to have faith before he can be healed. He can heal this person without any faith. And that's exactly what he does. How does Jesus heal him? He simply speaks. He simply speaks. Look at verse 8. Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed, and walk. No theatrics, just simply get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once, the man was healed, and he took up his bed, and he walked. And, and this, too, is something different than you see with uh, modern faith healers. This man was instantly healed. And you think about 38 years of being an invalid, paralyzed, or lame. Uh, many of us have friends or family or people we know who have been in that way for a long time, right? And you're, the ligaments, the tendons, the muscles, the deterioration of all of that. Is, 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 is a lot, and for all of that to instantly be regenerated, instantly be where he can stand up, and instantly, it's over, it's done, 38 years of being an invalid, and Jesus says, get up, take up your bed, and walk, and what does the man do? He does exactly that, and he goes from this pool, as we're going to find out, all the way over to the temple. Now, 
not only is this a sign from God to authenticate. Remember, signs are not just signs for the sake of signs. They're, all, they're, they're God-given. They're just as they were in the Old Testament to point people back to this is my man. Listen to him. I am authenticating him as my representative. I am validating the words that are coming out of his mouth by these signs. And so it was with this sign that Jesus is accomplishing. Uh, it is, and, and also we see that this, there's this other passage, Isaiah 35, 5 and 6. I believe I have it up here for you today. But there, we, we also look at this, and it's not just a sign. It is not just to authenticate. It is not just to validate. But also you have prophecy being fulfilled here, partially fulfilled. Isaiah 35, verse 6. Uh, this is pointing to the great restoration of Israel, the great new covenant that God was going to accomplish. And look at verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Do we see these things accomplished with the signs and miracles and wonders of Jesus? Yes. And it was to point them back to, look, this time is here. The Messiah is here. The time of the new covenant is here as well. Now let's continue on there in John 5. Uh, look at the end of verse 9. We'll read through verse 13. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man, said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in the place. All right, so here we have further proof, right? The man did not have faith in Jesus. He did not even know who he was. He was a complete stranger to him. Uh, here, though, we begin to see uh, another purpose of this sign Again, everything Jesus does is intentional. It's not accidental. And he, he lays eyes on this man who cannot walk, 38 years, it instantly healed, and he tells him to pick up his mat. Now think about it. Jesus could have easily said, get up and walk. But instead, he puts something in between that. He says, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And why does he do such a thing, right? It is... The Sabbath, this is a grand feast day. He does it intentionally to get the eyes of who? Those who are the judges, the judgmental ones, the Pharisees, right? Pharisees were known for great hypocrisy. Pharisees were known for all their rules and regulations and loving to judge others. And so by default, one of their favorite days to be alive is a Sabbath day. And not just any Sabbath day, this is a feast Sabbath day. And we get all these pilgrims from coming all around from the other nations back here. And what are we going to do? Love on them, show them mercy, show them grace, uh, give glory to God. No, we're going to judge them. All right? And so their eyes are peeled. They're looking for anyone doing any kind of work. And as we notice, as we know, the, the Pharisees added lots of rules, right? They, weren't, they didn't rely on just God's rules that he laid forth to Moses. They added and added and added and added hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of rules where they became the authority. And this is what judgmental people will do. 
It's not just that God says this, I say this, but I've said this so much and believe so much in my personal opinion that now it's equal to God's, all right? And this is what the Pharisees were doing. They were looking out, they were judging, and what do they see? They see a man who is carrying a mat. All eyes immediately hone in on this person, all right? The Pharisees loved rules and judging others supposedly because they loved God. However, in reality, they had gone beyond the law and had added rules upon rules to God's rules and made them equivalent with his. And this is something we all have to be very careful about, not to equate our own opinions and our own judgments uh, with that of God's and make our opinions and judgments equal to God's. We have to be cautious, see what's going on here with the Pharisees, learn from their bad example. God's given us great examples to learn from for the positive, also gives us great examples to learn from. Don't do this as well. Now, this was the prime time the Pharisees were judging. They had become extremely um, judgmental, uh, and they thought they were honoring God by their judgments, or they said these things. We don't think they really thought these things because when Jesus saw to their hearts, what did he see? He saw a, a whitewashed tomb. That means there's dead. There's nothing there inside. It's whitewashed, pretty on the outside, right? He saw dirty dish that had been cleaned on the outside for other people to see, but inside it was rotten and nasty when he saw them. He knew their heart. So they weren't doing these things to honor God. It was to prop themselves up as a high authority. It was selfish. It was prideful. In fact, y'all looked in discipleship last week at John 8, 44. Jesus straight out accuses them of being on the side of Satan himself. So it was not to honor God that the Pharisees were passing these judgments. It was not to glorify God. It was not for this lame man to glorify God further. I mean, think about this. 38 years he couldn't walk. Now he's walking. And what do the Pharisees see? Nothing except a man carrying a mat. Even when he tells them that I have been healed, there is no one going around doing healing. But sometimes we think this in the Bible, like everyone is just being healed all the time. Not the case. We have no record of anything like this going on except by the hand of Jesus Christ. A lame man of 38 years is now standing, walking, carrying his straw mat, and all they see is a violator that needs to be punished. All right? So their eyes peeled. They see the man, and now they're going to him. What happened? Why are you carrying this mat? And they're going to him. They're accusing him of breaking the Sabbath. Now, look at verse 14 in John chapter 5. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. And, and this is interesting, because now the man has gone to the temple. And I think a lot of this makes more sense when we know a little bit about the history of those, uh, the festivals, the feasts that we were just inquired, talked about there. They were required to go back to the temple. They were required to give an offering. Every male representative of every household was required to do so. This man, some of this speculative, all right, but this man, 38 years, was an invalid. He had been over with all of the handicapped people who could not go, could not move, and now he is instantly healed. Where does he take off to? He goes to the temple. And it could be, very well could be, this is his first time in 38 years to be able to walk, to go to the temple, and he is presenting an offering to the Lord on this required feast day. Again, some of that is speculative, but this seems to be the case. Why else would he be going to the temple? 
so it seems like he is, he is being now obedient to God. Jesus finds him, and what does he tell him? He says, repent of your sin. Go and sin no more. To, to stop this, to be done with the sin. He says, if not, something worse is going to, will happen to you. Most likely, Jesus is referring here of the second judgment, eternity in hell, etc., right? So he says, repent, sin no more, do not, that nothing worse may happen to you. So, very interesting. At this time, somewhere between verse 14 and verse 15, uh, he learns the name of Jesus. So he sees a stranger, stranger tells him, get up, take up your mat, and walk. Uh, he doesn't know who that stranger is. It's a huge crowd of people there, thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands. Many historians uh, estimate would come to these. Uh, he's gone. Uh, next thing you know, Jesus finds him at the temple and tells him this, you know, sin no more. And at somewhere between 14 and 15, he learns the name of Jesus, which is beautiful because you have this, you have the last thing he says to him is, see you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. And then he learns the name of Jesus. And we know what the name of Jesus means. Matthew 1, 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So it's no accident. It's beautiful how Jesus ties in the revelation of his name uh, to this man and encourages him, tells him, commands him, go and sin no more. Uh, what's greater, a physical healing or a spiritual healing, Right. Which one is going to last longer? Where is this man now? Well, if he obeyed Christ, which we're assuming this is the direction he was going, John doesn't give us all the details, but his physical body would still one day not work as all of ours will. What is most important? Your spiritual healing, cleansing from sin, forgiveness of sin, God's wrath passing over you, because only then do you eventually get the full spiritual healing, but also the full physical healing, new heaven, new earth, glorified bodies as well. But if you focus on just the body, not the spiritual, you don't get that. So Jesus is bringing his attention back to 38 years, you're walking, and Jesus doesn't even mention that, right? It's like, it's, it's like yes, you've been made well, but what's the most important thing you're going to learn from this lesson today? That you need to repent of your sin. And that is the, the point he's connecting this sign to, repent of your sin. This sign is not a bald sign. It's not empty. There's a meaning. There's a purpose to this sign. What is it? Repent of your sin. Look at verse 15, John chapter 5. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. So here we see that he has learned the name of Jesus. Now, some, some, some commentators, and I don't know, this is a, a short, short story, so it is Tempting to add more to it here or speculate a little bit. And I think you, there is some leeway you can kind of connect a few things like we've done towards the temple here and the feast, etc. Uh, but some will use this to say that, that the man was, was kind of a tattletale, kind of a blame shifter to the Pharisees, the judges of Israel. Their eyes are on him. And instead of saying, yes, I'm carrying my mat, I take full responsibility, he say, oh, no, the man uh, who healed me did it. And now he's saying, oh, now I know his name is Jesus. You can go get him. It doesn't seem that way to me. And, and I agree with those who say, actually, I think it's the opposite. I think he's not trying to blame shift. I don't think he's trying to tattletale. I think he is just speaking the truth. And he is, he, he, the, the Pharisees, in his mind, were the religious leaders of that day. 
And who would, who would want to know this more than anyone who is in their presence, who is in their town, who has the supernatural ability to heal someone that couldn't walk, couldn't move for 38 years, and now he knows the name of this person. His name is Jesus. This is who he is. Now look at verse 16. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. What has Jesus done that deserves persecution? It says, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. So originally, the Pharisees are mad at the man for carrying a mat. And then they're even more angry at Jesus because he told the man to carry his mat. But now we find out that they're mad at Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath and they're accusing him of working on the Sabbath. Now, how much strenuous activity did Jesus accomplish uh, to heal that man? Uh, he said, get up, right? I mean, that, that, it's, hard for, it's really hard for, to, for them to look at him and say, you are doing way too much work, all right? He said, simply said, get up, pick up your mat, and walk, and that's it. Um, but did Jesus do work on the Sabbath? Uh, you could say that he did. In fact, Jesus, if you look at verse 17, says that he never stops working. Look what he says. Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. So you have an interesting thing taking place. You have the guardians of the earthly temple of God. You have the Pharisees, the judges of man, the protectors of the law of God, supposedly, but as we find out there on the law of Satan, uh, coming against God in the flesh and judging him now. And this is what we continue to see from this point forward as we go through the book of John until finally and ultimately you get the earthly high priest judging God's ultimate high priest for the final showdown. But you have the Sanhedrin, that's against Christ. You have the Pharisees that are against Christ. The high priest that is against Christ. And all for what? What has he done? Oh, they're accusing him of working on, on the Sabbath day. And what does Jesus say? He, at this point, he could have said, no, I'm not working on the Sabbath. But instead, what does he say? I am working just like my father is working. Now, this is huge because he is claiming to have the same reason right reason for working as god the father what is he claiming he's claiming deity he's saying i am not just like you my father is working and i am working under the very same clause for the very same reason because we are the rule givers i am the law i am god i have been working i am working and i will continue to work what do they do they've just witnessed a sign 38 years this man couldn't walk, now he's been healed. The last Passover, Jesus was in Jerusalem around the temple performing signs as well. They know who Jesus is. Signs are not happening anywhere else. God is saying, this is my man. This is my message. Listen to him. And what do they do instead? We need to kill this guy. That lets you know that th these, these men are not of God. These men are of Satan. They see what he's doing. They hate what he's doing. And they try to twist and use God's law to put to death God in the flesh. This is amazing judgment that they are putting forward here. Now, 
Uh, in summary, we'll pick this up where we left off to, today. Uh, but the feasts and Sabbaths of the Old Covenant were extremely important to the Jews. We'll continue to see them mentioned through the book of John. Each feast had a practical and theological lesson that was to be focused upon. Uh, however, ultimately, the feasts were typological. They pointed towards something greater, shadow and substance, Christ being the substance. Jesus appears to use the times of the feast as important times to call people to belief and to expose people who are not true believers and to, to expose their condemnation, as he does to the Pharisees. Uh, someone greater than the feast, the Sabbath, the temple, or the authority of the Pharisees had arrived, and it is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this clear uh, word that you've brought us today that helps us to, to see as John is trying to expose us to this truth and that the, is continually building that Jesus is not just a man, but that he is very man and very God. Uh, we help us to see that this message, as truthful as it is, uh, was not accepted by many people. It was not even accepted by the religious leaders of that day. Help us to understand the same is true in our day that when we are clear about who Jesus is, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, that he is the only way to have forgiveness of sins, the only way to have our sins passed over, uh, people often do not like that message. Help us to know that we are in good company when even Jesus Christ himself was hated for proclaiming clearly who he was. Lord, help us to present clearly who Jesus Christ is and help us to be ready for whatever hatred or tribulation or trial might come because of that. Help us to be clear with the gospel, Lord. Lord, we pray that we would not be like the hypocrites who just constantly were looking out for someone to judge and thinking that we are doing something wonderful by judging, but help us to, to be gracious as Jesus Christ himself was. Help us to be uh, like the man who hopefully stopped the sin and repented of his sin, Lord. Help us to see that as well that you know of our, his sin, you know of our sin, you know if there's unconfessed sin in our lives. Lord, bring us to quick confession of our sins. Help us to repent quickly of those sins and continue to move forward in growth, Lord. We thank you, God, for our time together today. We thank you for our sweet fellowship. And we thank you, Lord, for bringing the ultimate healing to us. Even though our bones may crack and the illnesses may still be upon us, Lord, until we are with you, we know that we have been spiritually healed and that we will be in the new heavens, the new earth with glorified bodies for all of eternity with you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.